me, Chad. This Grimalkin Lane podcast. That, that was my best case our interpretation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Grimalkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics of the 1970s. Crazy. We are done with the 60s and into the 70s now. Uh, today, we are recording my favorite episode of the month, each month, which is The Trial. Uh, today, we are putting the character of Kevin Plunder, or Kesar, on trial. It's going to be a wild time. In my assessment, this is a character not a lot of people give really any thought to, except he's kind of a fun guest star once in a while. And uh, researching this character, as I've referenced on the show a few times, was an entire damn education. (laughs) So we'll be talking a lot about that. Before I welcome my friends in uh, this esteemed and good-looking jury, let me do a little bit of presentation on Kesar. In 1894, Rudyard Kipling, a British author, gave us the Jungle Book. This was in an era of British colonialism when the wilds of Africa, India, and other places were being parceled out and given to various British lords and ladies who used slave labor, force, and taxation to dominate the customs, culture, and people of the land they occupied. Back in London, books were being published full of fascination about the newly discovered strange animals hidden in the dense and mysterious jungles of far away. Lions, gorillas, leopards, tigers, elephants. The character Mowgli is used in the Jungle Book as a, in a series of fables teaching about the laws of the jungle or uh, involving himself with animal characters like Baloo, Bagheera, and Shere Khan. And these, of course, would go on to become household favorites, largely because of the, uh, the Disney movie and the Boy Scouts. The law of the jungle is the phrase that's introduced often here. This is a phrase that has come to be directly associated with the concept of survival of the fit, uh, the survival of the fittest. A phrase coined in the 1860s in the concept of uh, Darwinism, which is the idea that the stronger species will take over that of the lesser species, oversimplifying, but that's basically what the law of the jungle is. You kill the biggest predator, you secure the most valuable land and resources, and then you dominate from there. And Great Britain did just that. Many countries were doing that in regions all around the world. Uh, this was happening in, uh, in, with uh, governments of France, Russia, China, America among them as they spread out. Then in 1912, the author Edgar Rice Burroughs gave us the character Tarzan. His real name is John Clayton II, sometimes called the Viscount Greystroke. He's a British high lord that's lost in the jungle. Tarzan is the story of a British boy, a white man, lost in the jungle and learning to survive through skill and savagery. There have been dozens of books, films, and movies made about this character, and subsequently, Jane of the Jungle became famous as well. Also, this became a Disney movie. Then in 1936, Bob Bird gave us the American Tarzan, if you will, a character named David Rand, Kesar, who appeared in a magazine published by Manvis Publishing, which was owned by Martin Goodman, a name that many comics people from Marvel know. Uh, And this was uh, in Kesar number one. This character was later incorporated into the very first Marvel Comics number one, the same book that first introduced the Human Torch and the Submariner. Uh, This case is a blonde man named David Rand. He's also a British High Lord. He's been lost in the jungles of the Congo, stranded there with his father. He makes friends with hippos, warthogs, elephants, and eagles, and his arch nemesis is the deadly leopard Njaga. One day, a jewel hunter kills David's father, and David defeated the man with the help of his friend, a lion named Zar. Then he re- renamed himself Kazar. He appeared about three dozen times, and the last time he showed up was in 1942, when he helped the Nazis 
uh, excuse me, helped fight the Nazis in his cheetah print briefs. He's never been seen again. Then in 1953, Marvel also gave us the character Lorna, the jungle queen, who is a white woman whose parents died, leaving her to survive in the jungle on her own. We're hearing a similar theme. Uh, and her title ran for about 26 issues. Finally, it's 1963. Stanley and Jack Kirby have given us a new fantastic, uh, excuse me, a new human torch in the Fantastic Four. They brought back the Submariner in the Fantastic Four, then Captain America and the Avengers. And then it's X-Men number 10, and they've decided it's time for a new Kesar. It's an entirely new character for a new era, but he has the same name, but no connection to David Rand whatsoever. They've upped the stakes, though, because instead of the Congo or the wilds of India, they've set Kevin's story in the Savage Land, a prehistoric jungle in Antarctica that's populated by dinosaurs. Because why not? It's blonde, it's blonde Tarzan with dinosaurs. Cool. Uh, but don't worry, Kevin's still British. And his real name? Lord Kevin Reginald Plunder. The word plunder itself is phenomenal <laughs> in his name. So uh, there's a brief introduction to kind of the history of Kesar and why he's unique and kind of where he comes from. Let me take some time to introduce my incredible jury here. As you guys are each introducing yourselves, let us know your name, your gender pronouns, where we might know you from, and what do you love about Kesar? And or what was it like for you to research this character? Uh, let's begin with my friend Noelle Reed. How are you, Noelle? Good. Happy to be here. I'm Noelle Sheher um, from the X-Men Unraveled podcast. Um, I didn't know really anything about Kesar before this. And I feel like the part that I enjoyed about his stories is that tension of being uh, a white man in the jungle and like how he either does or doesn't deal with that. I think that's what I found most interesting in the stories that I read. Oh, save my commentary for a moment. <laughs> uh, let's next go to my friend, Justin Wilder. Hi, Justin. Hello, me, Justin. Pronouns, he, him. Uh, what do I love? Uh, oh, uh, XY Podcast co-host with my wife, Alicia. Uh, what do I love about Kazar? Well, it's really the Savage Land and Tarzan. Uh, sorry, Kazar, but I love the things that you're associated with in my mind. And I, I, I also do love how especially in the stories that I read, how to a T he follows that law of the jungle and, and protects his family, his his brother tiger. Uh, and, and just to have a tiger brother like that, yes, all of that. Uh, I, I grew up loving the Disney movie Tarzan, primarily because of the going through trees and a favorite character spider-man there's a lot of overlap nightcrawler favorite x-men you know like there's a lot of connections between these so this you know peak physicality of a human guy swinging through trees taking on the scariest beasts in the world all for it phenomenal uh next let's go to mr hussein rashid hi hussein Hey, Chad. Hey, all. Uh, Hussein Rashid, he, him. I'm not going to do the me Hussein bit. Uh, just <laughs> so they're done. That. Uh, uh, you know me as a Gray Malkin Laner regular. And um, let's see, what do I find interesting? I, you know, I first ran across Kazar. I'm going to go between Kazar and Kazar because I, in head, it's always Kazar, but I think it's Kazar now. And so I'll switch back and forth. But I, I you know, for me, Kazar was always with the X Men. I first remember that early uh, appearance of the X-Men in the Savage Land. Uh, and the Savage Land has always been really interesting to me. It's like, what would be cool to have this really pristine place? And 
Kazar is just sort of the vehicle to getting there for me. So fantastic. And we'll address this right away. Uh, I've pronounced his name Kazar most of my life. I know people have a very uh, variable ways of saying it. On the first appearance of him on the cover, it tells you how to pronounce his name. <laughs> so it's Kazar K A Y hyphen S-A-R is how they uh, how they recommend it. But you guys can call him Kazar or Kazoo or whatever you like for the remainder of the trial. That's <laughs> completely fine. <laughs> uh, next, let's go to Alicia Wilder. Hi, Alicia. Hello, I'm Alicia. She, her, hers. I am also co-host of the Ex-Wife podcast. Um, here's the thing that I like about Kazar so much. He has this like, interesting sense of honor like he always jumps to a defensive state but once you do something that was like on his side like you aid him in some way or you show some sense of heroics or valor he immediately has this like sense of honor that like you should be saved or you are an ally or like i like can't let you die because you're a good person you know like he always comes back to that interesting sense of honor, regardless of his, I don't know, authority of himself, where he kind of is always like, I am the ruler of the jungle, obviously me, <laughs> number one, but you did something good, so you, number two. Like, he just, I don't know, I just find that very charming in an interesting way. Absolutely. And then uh, finally, last but not least, uh, Steve Duda. Hi, Steve. Hello. It's me, Steve. Um, if you know me at all you and you're listening to this podcast, then you probably know me as a Great Malkin Lane irregular. I have made appearances on uh, numerous past trials and special episodes, and I hope you'll go listen to those. I'm uh, also a contributor to X's for Podcast, uh, another X-Men podcast, one of, the, one of the very many, and I make appearances here and there. Um, the thing I like about Kazar, uh, Kazar whichever, um, is interesting because I don't I don't like I don't like him the person really like at all I always enjoy reading Shanna but the thing that I like about Kazar is that due to his position as an extremely outdated colonialist like fantasy character from the old Pulp Fiction days of comic book publishing but also due to his existence in the current landscape of Marvel Comics as it is now in 2023 his, his any comic that features Kazar presents this intriguing opportunity to address the consequences of colonialism, the concept of indigeneity at its source, and you know the impact of the modern world and its tension with you know environmentalism and preservation. There's so much that is there to be explored, and that opportunity has always been there, and that opportunity is what lures me in. Unfortunately, I think it's only really been capitalized on by the recent Kazar Lord of the Savage Land. That may be the only book that I've seen that actually does the thing, but it's a thing I've been waiting for for a really long time, and it's what's kept me coming back to this character over the years. Fantastic. And then lastly, my name is Chad Anderson. I'm the host of this show. I, uh, I've i been preparing for this one for a while. When I'm, when I'm writing up these trials, I have to find like a literary space for the character to occupy before I can kind of start to make sense of the history. And... Because Kesar is fascinatingly, we, we've divided this trial up by decade because it seems like every 10 years or, or so, the way that they're telling the stories shifts a little bit. And you'll, you'll see what we mean as we kind of go through this. Each of you in, in my jury took one section or one decade. 
And we're not covering his appearances comprehensively. We can't do that on this show, but we're covering a, a swath of them across time. And the reinterpretation of those concepts was fascinating. But it wasn't until I connected him to like the Tarzan kind of jungle book, this idea of conquering the jungle and taking it back to, uh, you know, the old interpretation of uh, Darwinism and the law of the jungle. That That's where I was like, oh, oh, that's what this character is. And we'll, we'll examine him as a character, but as a literary device. I mean, he's he's Marvel's Tarzan, but he's also kind of Conan the Barbarian. Uh, I love K-Star because he's sassy. Like, I really, the, we, we just reviewed an issue on my show where he rips a tree out of the ground and knocks Angel out of the air with it. I was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> or he's like, he's like, look at the size of my forearms. You wouldn't understand what it's like to be this muscular. Like, he's a, he's a sassy, funny character. But the best part about him is Shanna. Uh, I, I love the character, uh, Shanna the She-Devil. Now, uh, let me kind of just ask the blanket question. What was it like for you guys to read some of his appearances kind of comprehensively? I know we're going to examine them uh, more deeply, but uh, th again, this is a character we don't often give a lot of thought to. What was it like for you to go back and read these? Uh, Justin, I know in, in, in particular, your section was wild. <laughs> <laughs> There's some crazy stuff in the 70s. Uh, what was it like for you guys to, to read these uh, these stories? It was a lot of action. It was a lot of barbaric action and fighting the the nature that whatever it has to throw at you, um, which was, I, I loved it. I, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it's interesting because in the stories that I read, I felt like almost bad for him because I felt like he was so secluded in his, you know, from his childhood to his adult life that he really doesn't have an understanding of the world and social interactions. And he just sort of started fending for himself and just assumed that that meant that he had to be this like superior person in order to survive. But every time he encounters another character, he doesn't really understand how to relate to them or how to have a conversation with them. He just goes right to this defensive place. And, and then like, for me, there was this shift in all of a sudden he gets taken to England. And then when he comes to, to Spider-Man, he's like wearing like civilized clothes and like making full sentences. But then like, in his private area, like resorts to ripping his shirt off and speaking in like single syllable words again. So I just like, I don't know, he's very interesting to me. And I almost feel bad that he didn't, didn't have enough social interaction as a child being yeah. trapped in the jungle. <laughs> There's a lot of scenes of him in, in his stories where he's trying to live in this, this civilized land, quote unquote. In the Mark Wade series in the 90s, as an example, he he's rich. So he rents out this giant hotel room at like the Plaza Hotel. But then he imports a bunch of plants and little dinosaurs and like just makes it this like savage space that he can relax in inside the city. Uh, or or there's the stories where he's living in his his castle in England, but just you know, ripping his shirt off and running around on a loincloth and sleeping on the floor with his saber-toothed tiger because that's what makes him feel most at home. The contradictions in the character are really fascinating to me. I got the uh, the latter batch, the most recent run. And it's funny, you started with uh, the Tarzan and the Rudyard Kipling, right? I mean, obviously gave us the Jungle Book, but Kipling also gave us the White Man's Burden and oh, sure. running into plunder. Uh, it just feels really appropriate, but... Like the the two thousands were really, I thought, and I know we'll get into this, but it's sort of a really interesting reimagining of what this means now, with what we know now and how we think about the world now, and just 
even looking back 20 years ago, uh, was really interesting. And I, I kept thinking, again, because you mentioned the Jungle Book in your notes, Chad, is uh, Riz Ahmed, who's this actor and musician. A lot of you might know him from uh, Star Wars Rogue One. He's Bodhi um, in that. And he was Oscar nominated for uh, playing a heavy metal drummer in an Amazon Prime original, the name of which is escaping. One of you might is escaping one of you might remember it but he has this interesting thing called mogul mowgli where he tries to take that mowgli trope and invert it and he's done a short film and really fascinating so it felt like plunder was part of that or sorry the 2000s uh kazar kaiser kaiser whatever is uh is in that vein you know of trying to reimagine what this could be were any of you surprised to learn that there had been a oh i'm sorry steve uh let me ask this question then you can uh, incorporate your comment in uh, were you, any of you surprised to learn there was an earlier version of Kesar, like the 1940s version? I feel yeah. like that's a weird trivia fact that people just don't know. <laughs> yeah. I happen to know about that because I have read Marvel Comics number one a number of times. I'm a big fan of the Human Torch short in there. Um, mm -hmm. The Namor stuff is really good. It's honestly a really good issue of comics, and I highly recommend anybody who is interested in the early history of Marvel Comics or Golden Age Comics in general read it. Uh, but yeah, that's super weird. It's It reminds me very strongly of the original version of Swamp Thing, where he's like a shambling kind of like older style monster set in the past. It's a different person, but it has all the notes of what will later become. It's interesting that his last name is Rand, a thing Marvel right. seems to have gone back to. Another uh, another white billionaire character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With Blonde cultural appropriation led. challenges. <laughs> Who said uh, your movie was The Sound of Metal? It's a great movie. That is a good movie. Uh, okay, you, Steve. before we uh, before we were doing this trial, I considered doing an entire trial episode to do the history of the Savage Land. I was going to do a whole Savage Land episode. We did one of those on Cerebro on my show once where we just, it wasn't a trial, but we did it like as a history review. I ultimately decided not to do that because it takes up a lot of space on the show and I've got a lot of competing characters I want to get to. But let's talk about the Savage Land first. Uh, Savage Land first appears in X-Men number 10. This place has been indelibly associated with nearly every Marvel series. It's a wildly popular fictional locale in the Marvel universe. It's dinosaurs, tribes, and jungles. The X-Men have been to the Savage Land so many times and some very, very famous storylines. It's the frequent home of the Savage Land mutates, Sauron, Garok the Petrified Man, Zaladane, the Hauka, and like so many more characters. The story in continuity, although it is not widely discussed, you have to dig up these issues to find the history. But 200 million years ago in the Marvel Universe, an alien race called the Nuwali had this uh, created the Savage Land as an experiment on Earth and kind of a resort space. Uh, this is another of a bajillion alien races who has interfered with the development of life on Earth. And at this point, there are so many. Uh, they gathered a bunch of dinosaurs, Noah's Ark style, and put them in this preserve in Antarctica and used a bunch of fancy extra-dimensional self-perpetuating machines to uh, to keep the complicated tropical climate in these snowy borders that allowed the Savage Land to survive throughout history. Uh, these machines were later used by the ancient Atlanteans to create the subsequent land of Pangaea, which is much less known in Marvel, but it's a huge section of land. Uh, this is a massive preserve with its own set of races and dinosaurs and creatures and all sorts of like human mutated tribes of people uh, when dinosaurs went extinct on the rest of the Earth, they kept surviving in the Savage Land, preserved by the machines. And later, the development of mammals like mammoths and smilodons were uh, were present in the Savage Land as well, as well as early humans who then went on to form complex tribes. 
We're not going to talk about the tribes of the savage land, savage land much today, but there's a couple dozen of them. Some of them featured quite regularly. Some have only appeared in one issue ever. Uh, these machines uh, in the savage land built by the Nuwali are the source of many storylines connected to the high evolutionary, Thanos, Robot Ultron, which is a storyline from the unbeatable Squirrel Girl that we won't get to today, but it's great. Uh, Roxon, AIM, uh, Polyscions, and more. In their most recent appearance, Kesar and Shanna the She-Devil have received superpowers from these machines, but we'll talk more about that a little bit later. Uh, let's talk about the Savage Land and Pangea for just a minute. What do you love about this place? Or, or, or just anything you want to bring up here is great. Dinosaurs. 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 <laughs> I mean, I just ancient, ancient alien dinosaur pterodactyl people. All of that is great. Like every time the Savage Land was in a comic or in an episode of the animated series, uh, attention just shot up because you're going to take my favorite superheroes and you're going to throw in dinosaurs and it's a problem for everyone. Let's go. 30 <laughs> minutes. We're in. Lock and load. I just I love it. It's good stuff. Uh, yeah. Do you guys have a favorite Savage Land story? Like one that it, this brings up a lot of nostalgia for comics fans. Obviously, the the idea of the Antarctic prehistoric jungle. I, I would like to throw this out there. Uh, I the Savage Land is not a location that has always drawn my interest, although I loved it in Lord of the Savage Land and some of the X Men appearances that I've read it in. Pangea is something that I did not know about before reading Eighties Kazar for today. And let me just tell you, my mind was blown and I laughed out loud when I realized that Kazar, who is literally a literary stand-in for like the kind of like man-child who needs to grow up and like understand the world around him, who is often this escapist fantasy. He's bored with his life as a rich white person in the modern world. So he has this escapist fantasy where he's off in the jungle living this simple life. And Kazar, who is already living that life, discovers that there is another Savage Land below the Savage Land that's bigger and prettier called Pangea that is an Atlantean amusement park. And it's literally like the Savage Land, but bigger and prettier. And he's like, oh, life in the Savage Land has become so boring and unwe-filled. And I just I just need to get away from the pressures of commitment to Shanna the She-Devil and all this. And so he goes and escapes into yet another jungle escapist fantasy from the one he's already in. It's wild to me. I had not, no idea that existed, but honestly, that makes the Savage Land 10 times more interesting. The Kazar series in the early 80s, I think it ran for 34 issues, is actually a pretty solid read. It's it's it's, it's wild. It's damn good entertainment all the way through. It was it was pretty fun. We interviewed Val Merrick on my show recently. Uh, Val was part of that series for a while. Uh, it's it's a wildly good time if you if you want to go back and read some obscure comics that not a lot of people know about. Uh, anyone else? Uh, favorite Savage Land stories? Well, I don't have uh, many favorite because I am new to the Savage Land, but I get so excited every time I get a glimpse into it. Um, just because I came into X-Men comics like later in my life and was a big like dinosaur person before that and a big Jurassic Park fan. So when I like get to kind of peek into that that world of it all, um, I don't know. It's really exciting because it's like feels like all the nerddoms coming together. Um, so I just like want more of it. I would like everyone to go to the Savage Land all the time. Let's bring the Savage Land to Krakoa. Like, come on, dinosaurs on Krakoa. Uncanny X Men one fourteen, one fifteen, and one sixteen. 
when the second Genesis, the, the, the team with Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Storm, they all get thrown into the Savage Land after that fight with Magneto and somehow his volcano connects to, I don't whatever. But to bring these new characters into this place and they're completely thrown off and, and, and Sauron, I love Sauron, you know what I mean? That's the story where Banshees are real hot for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, I'm right there with you. Is that also the story where Rogue and Magneto set up a little hut together? No, that comes later, right? That's, that's 274, yeah, yeah. 275. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the one that really sticks. I, I, I like the one Justin mentioned, but I, it's the one where Rogue and Magneto set up house that I really... That really it's is where Cyclops favorite. explores having a piratical mustache. That's right. That's that's exactly the, that's exactly the storyline. He's like, I look like Corsair. I wonder if there's a relationship. No, I've, I've never no, heard it's just dumb. Piratical. I believe it's Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, thirty-two through thirty-five, the Ryan North series. Uh, she and her her roommate Nancy go to the Savage Land, and it's adorable. And they're like, Oh my god, there are dinosaurs here! It's so cool! And they're like nerding out hardcore, and then they fight Ultron, who's taken on the form of a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and it's fantastic. Uh, Noel, do you have a favorite? I think my favorite thing about the Savage Land is the episodes from the um, the cartoon. I love those episodes, and I just, the dinosaurs showing up, and you get to meet a few of the characters around, and I think that's, I know it's not from the comics, but I, that's my like kind of nostalgia about the Savage Land, the cartoon. We just got through the Magneto in his creator guys uh, era in the Savage Land. Uh, we're getting ready to spend a lot of time in the Savage Land on my show as we get into X-Men The Hidden Years as well. So we're going to be talking about this place, not only in our next few trials, I'll talk about that later, uh, but uh, but on the main show as well. We're going to we're going to spend a lot of time in this space. Back when I used to write my Marvel Survivor fan fiction, for my long-term listeners, you'll know what I'm talking about. I based my first series in the Savage Land, which was also a ton of fun. It was a, it's a, it's a fun place. Okay, let's move forward. Uh, let's talk about Kesar's origins. These are bizarre ones that were fleshed out in some early Daredevil comics, in all, of all places. Uh, Alicia, I know you read this part for the show. It's a, it's a crazy story. In <laughs> London, oh, go ahead. What, what were you saying? It's just so funny. It's just so, it's just so funny. <laughs> okay, so in London, Lord Robert Plunder married a woman named Blanche and then moved her into his family castle. And then they had two sons named Parnival and Kevin. And yes, Kesar has a brother named Parnival. Many people don't know that as well. Uh, Robert Plunder was an explorer that discovered the sa Savage Land and he found a strange ore that could dissolve metal. This was later called antimetal or Antarctic vibranium. It's not the same as the one in Wakanda. It's a different version. He buried a vast amount of this antimetal in a uh, vault and then it built a medallion, which is the only thing that could open the vault. And then he learned that his wife Blanche had been murdered by enemy agents who wanted this anti-metal back in England. So he went back, he split the medallion in half, he gave one half to Parnival and one half to Kevin. Then he left Parnival with his butler and took Kevin back with him to the Savage Land. So Kevin's like eight or ten years old. Later stories would reveal that this medallion that they have would not just open the vault, but it would also be able to access the interdimensional interiors of the New Wally machines in the Savage Land. And Thanos is part of that story. It's nuts. Uh, other later stories would show that Robert uh, was needlessly slaughtering creatures. Very like, uh, you know, the rich 
Trump's sons like shooting creatures on an expedition through Africa kind of kind of energy to those stories. Uh, when we get back to the Savage Land, there's a character named Magor, M-A-A-G-O-R, who first appears in X-Men 10 alongside Kassar, but he's not a character that's been very explored over the years. He's a member of a tribe of man-apes, and he, I'll do a Patreon episode on this guy someday, because he has a wild story. He becomes a god once? It's nuts. Anyway, we'll get back to Magor another time. Magor killed Robert, so now young Kevin is left in the Savage Land by himself, and he is saved by Zaboo who was the last of the saber-toothed tigers or the Smilodons because his race had been exterminated. Kevin took on the name Kesar, meaning the son of the tiger, and he grew up fit, strong, and savvy in the jungle, in the savage land. His basically only companion was his uh, saber-toothed tiger, who he considers his brother, and he is interacting with the local tribes, fighting dinosaurs, and kind of just remembering what he knew in his youth. This is not a kid that had social media or books. Uh, like, he's just living by the sweat of his brow, basically. Uh, now, he didn't go to Pangea until many years later, but he got to know the Savage Land very well, as well as its tribes and customs. Uh, Kesar had no memories of his past for many years. Eventually, he met the X-Men, then Daredevil, then Spider-Man. He became a guest star in dozens of other comics over time, and had a few of his own series and limited series across the years. He's a pretty popular guest star. Whenever someone goes to the Savage Land, you want Kesar to show up. Uh, and he's uh, he's got an entire rogues gallery uh, all to himself. One of them is his brother, Parnival, who takes on the name Plunderer, and he is the gayest character ever. <laughs> he's, a, he's a fancy purple pirate. If you guys have seen that show, Our Flag Means Death, uh, yeah. Uh, it's fantastic, but uh, the plunderer would fit right into that like gay cast of pirates on that show. Uh, but he's terrible. Uh, he's also got Magor the Mane, Garok the Petrified Man, the wizard Malgado, the demonic Blasco, who is a character uh, from the X-Men that many people do not know has origins in Kazar comics, uh, Stegron the Dinosaur Man, the High Evolutionary, Sauron, Gregor, who is the hunter who trained Craven, uh, Craven the Hunter himself, and so many more. Kesar also has one of the longest marriages in comic books. Uh, he's married to Shanna O'Hara, who's an incredible character, a veterinarian and an Olympic-level athlete who moves to the Savage Land for a simpler life. They also have a son together named Matthew. Matthew was a baby in the comics for a long time, and then a boy for a minute, and then in a behind-the-scenes story, they just reveal that he was rapidly aged into a teenager after he fell into a hole in Pangea, apparently. There's some adventure we don't know about, but he's a teenager in the comics. Uh, first, though, Kesar uh, dated the evil Ramona Starr. Uh, I know, Steve, you read this section. Of, I fucking love Ramona Starr. This is another character that I want to do a Patreon episode about. Uh, he dated Barbara Morse, who's the future Mockingbird. He also dated, uh, pretty seriously, a tribal princess in Pangea with the very clever name of Leanne. Just <laughs> a basic... He's He's, uh, I think he's been associated with random characters like Iranda, Sisha, and Tandy Snow, uh, but we're not going to list them all. He has a, a, a wild romantic history. Uh, tell me your thoughts about Kassar's origins and his uh, his kind of family associations. I just think that it's, I really would love to get inside his dad's head and wonder why, like, okay, you want to protect this metal, just this thing that destroys other metals that you found. So you're going to take this medallion and you're going to separate it and you're going to give one to each of your sons. But why take one of the kids to the Savage Land with you? And then, you know, like, 
there's no hope for him after that point. I just don't just leave him with one family member and leave one with another. Or like, I don't know. The savage land just seems like an interesting choice for adventure. Um, and also he's like, what he's made, never watched Tarzan. <laughs> right. And like, what made him choose, you know, one brother over the other to go to the savage land, you know, how does that. Well, so Parnival, he's got a really weird and unique name, right? So he's got some other stuff to work through. He's going to be all right. Kevin, that's like, like Parnival and Kevin, I just, that stuck out. I could not get over the fact that, yes, we will name this boy, this great family name, Parnival, and then Ned Kevin. And also, but- <laughs> okay, I'm going to, sorry, but like, I just, I, how come Parnival remembers everything and Kevin doesn't remember his name is even Kevin? Like, when he comes to him in the stories that I was reading and he's like, I'm the plunderer and I have a secret mission. I'm going to find my long lost <laughs> brother. Like, Kesar doesn't even know that his brother exists. So, like, I want to know what happened there. Like, when did he lose his memory? And apparently if he goes into the Savage Land when he's like, I don't know, a young child but not a baby, why does he lose his ability to speak full sentences and, like, I, like you know what I mean? I just don't. How did we get here? What happened to you? <laughs> Were any of you aware of the character Parnival Plunder prior to this section? No. Yes. No. He's he's a wild. He's been in weird places. Like uh, he's one of the he's one of the villains that um, that uh, the Punisher kills in Civil War, oh which God. is weird. Except it wasn't the first time I saw him. <laughs> he's fancy. I learned about him from the Punisher killing him. And I was like, well, if the Punisher is committing a homophobic hate crime against this character, I should probably know about him. I, I love this villain. He's nuts. Uh, other thoughts on his origin story? Any early thoughts on his marriage to Shanna? They're they're uh, a, a great pair. I actually like them together a lot. She could do so much better, but he grows over time. So you know, I really I mean, like them now. I mean, but he's so hot. <laughs> <laughs> I know, like they're both so hot. That's the thing. Kazar the Savage is the name of a book that I absolutely would not pick up if I didn't have a reason. But the art is gorgeous, and they are both drawn so hot. Like Shanna the She Devil obviously is just a cheesecake pinup masterpiece, and she always has been. But like beyond that, she's so smart. She's smart as a fucking whip, and she literally will not take any shit. But Kazar is dumb as a fucking rock and looks great in red briefs, and that's all you need from him. <laughs> I love the fact that she keeps calling about for being an idiot. She's like, you know, you're so pretty, and that makes up for so much. And she keeps saying it, and I'm like, I'm so glad somebody's lampshading this relationship. You know? yes. I came away really liking Shanna from these 80s issues because the 80s issues often portray Kazar specifically as like a bit of a misogynist and a bit of a complete asshole. Like, it, it takes no consideration for the woman in his life. But through it all, she is just like so much smarter than him. <laughs> and it's clear that. She only wants one thing, and we all know what that is. That's the jungle vine action. I mean, he also dated Mockingbird. That's a, that's a crazy connection, too. She likes dumb assholes, too, though. She married Clint Barton. Oh, that's true. She moved on to Hawkeye after that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any other thoughts on his origins? Or uh, was this surprising for people? I, I think a lot of people, when they hear Kesar's origins for the first time, they're like, what? It's just interesting experiencing it in real time, reading the issue. That's what I'll say. Yeah, I definitely yeah. said, what? 
Okay, so for the first 20 years in his history, Caesar comes across as, pardon my French, but the white man's wet dream. He is the super sexy man in a loincloth who lives in the jungle and he kills beasts with a knife and he beds whatever woman is in front of him. He's Conan the Barbarian, but there have been a lot more thoughtful interpretations of him over time as well. Here's one example that is not part of the trial today. It's 1971, Savage Tales number one, and there's an evil couple named Carla and Ralph <laughs> who are trying to exploit the resources of the savage land. Ralph is desperate to prove to Carla that he can be a real man, but she's completely distracted by Kesar because he's gorgeous and there's a jungle man suddenly in, in her uh, in her view. Uh, he saves, Kesar saves Carla from a snake and then she gropes him while saying, you call yourself Kesar. I find you fascinating. I've never known anyone so powerful, so masculine. Your shoulders, your sinews, your fantastic sun-bronzed skin. You make me feel so feminine, so weak and helpless. I want to know everything about you. But oh no, Carla is evil and she drugs Kesar and tries to steal, steal some vibranium, but then she dies in the jungle. And there are a shocking number of stories like this. By the way, the writer of this story was Stanley, which is, again, telling you so much. There are predominantly, in my opinion, four kinds of Kazar stories. Number one is man versus jungle, which, of course, is lots of dinosaur fights. Number two is man versus civilized world. He's the jungle man who doesn't understand the cities or society or other humans. Number three is man versus tribal politics. He's the white man in the jungle where the tribes around him have so much conflict and he keeps trying to get involved and say, I rule over you. Later, they form parliaments and he's like trying to figure out where he fits in. There's a lot of those types of stories. And the number four is man versus corporation. There are so many stories about evil, corrupt governments or groups trying to pillage the resources, excuse me, of the savage land, including Roxxon and AIM. And by the way, for much of Marvel's history, the United Nations has declared the Savage Land as a place where you cannot go to get resources. Uh, it's an interesting thing. Sorted into all of that are stories, of course, about Kesar's family, his complicated relationships with Shanna and his kid. But in the last few years, uh, they've started to upgrade Kesar. He now has superpowers. He's in tremendous shape, and he's always an expert on the savage land. He usually has a knife or a spear, and he's fighting giant beasts and supervillains with only his skills. He might swing on a vine or jump in a volcano, and there's lots of very, very pretty Kesar pictures. We'll post some of those with the trial. Uh, by the way, there's a funny moment in the Lockjaw series of all places where the character D-Man, who has recently been revealed to be gay, wakes up and Kazar's standing over him in a loincloth and D-Man's like, oh, my fantasies are come to life. <laughs> but Kesar has also been in some bizarre stories, a Herald of Galactus in a recent one-page uh, space in a Jason Aaron Avengers comic. Uh, now he has the powers of the Savage Land itself. Uh, he and Shanna both, they're able to manipulate plants and animals, regenerate from death, even take on the different traits of species native to the Savage Land. All of this has uh, kind of been the most recent Kesar series. Uh, Kesar has also been recently on the ancillary Avengers team called the Agents of Wakanda. Let's talk about Kesar stories. What makes a good Kesar story? Or do you have kind of thoughts on this section? Feels like it's largely associated with uh, fish out of water, right? You have this guy who's confused by whatever the customs are. I feel like he feels the most at home when he's just fighting a giant animal. 
And that's something he knows. That's what he's been raised on. But when you put him in the outside world that he actually came from, or when he gets a little bit more into the inner workings of the tribal politics, or even when the outside world comes to him, like he he just reacts with his base reactions, the the tribal instincts or the the instincts that he has from fighting in the jungle in these different circumstances. So it's always him with his base kind of reacting to what's around him that's different. Okay. So I had I had a, a run where there was a lot of tribal politics and the whole parliamentary system uh, comes into play. And I think sometimes, at least again, in the, in the sections I read, the the writers sometimes miss it. Like they get into the tribal politics and they show... Oh, here's this white guy, you know, bringing in his Lord Plunder attitude. He's trying to fix everything. And I think that does a bit of a disservice to him because I think what was more interesting, what they could have leaned more into is what does it mean to live in a society where people don't always agree with each other? Like you've got all these dozens of tribes who have their own very special interests. And like that's actually would have been a really interesting story in you have limited natural resources. How do you figure out how to use them for each other? And I think that's also the types of stories I like, which is when Roxxon comes in, unequivocally the bad guy. It's not about being anti-modern. It's like, how do we live with the world we're in and just smashing things? And those are the ones I really liked as well. Yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts yeah. on what makes a good Kazar story? I think the best Kazar stories are the ones where Kazar is forced to like grapple with his own legacy, you know? Like the plunders, the plunder family, whiteness, masculinity, his son all of that, what it means to be a lord in the British world and what it means to be lord of the savage land, the tension between the two. I think those are the best stories that they tell. I agree with Hussein. Like, anytime Roxxon comes in or polluters come in or people take in the resources, that can be really, really good stuff, and it always is. That came up in my sections, too, that just the identity that he's chosen versus the identity that he was born with, and he's not good at figuring out what to do between the two of them. And, you know, he, he kind of just looks at every problem to be fixed in the same way. Like, I'm just going to start a fight when in doing that, he's sort of ignoring his family wealth and his name and the things that like he has power in, but he's, he's denying like his own ability to use those resources or use that past to help the savage land. He does want to help it, but he's just not good at figuring out what to do or what's the best course of action. Yeah, I think some of the most amusing stories about him also flesh out his character. When he's back in England and they're like, oh, you're part of this corrupt family. He's like, well, yeah, but I'm not part of this family. I grew up somewhere else. The customs are different there. There's no laws and boundaries. Why can't I run around the streets of your city with my saber-toothed tiger and my shirt off? I don't understand why that's a problem here, you know? Or the way people treat him. They often see him as dumb. They often see him as unpowered. And he's associating with these, these larger-than-life uh, villains. Uh, I referenced the Jason Aaron Avengers series. Because I've had a few pretty great moments. But they've, they've kind of portrayed him as this, like, crazy adventurer who's like jumping out of spaceships with a knife in his teeth you know uh like it's, it's the uh it's the crazy warrior guy uh but there's also really surprisingly human portrayals of him sometimes in the mark wade series after he has a baby he's reckoning with this idea of i lost my own childhood and now i'm supposed to raise a child and like when you when you look at the more human components of him along the way uh his wrestle with nature versus technology 
he's got some complexities to him that make him pretty interesting. But ultimately, I just really like the pretty pinups of him <laughs> leaping into danger with his shirt off. <laughs> Any final thoughts before we begin the trial section? I like I I love the feelings we get when we talk about these characters. It fleshes them out in different ways. Uh, and it, this again, this is a character we don't often give a lot of thought to. So this was a lot of fun to. This felt delicate. The colonialism aspects of it felt delicate. But I do think as we are proceeding with the trial, we have to keep in mind that the laws of the savage land are going to be different than those of the mainstream world. The culpability of Kesar and some of the stories we're about to talk to. Uh, how much is his savagery warranted? Does he have to kill the creatures that he's involved with? Does he have a right to be involved in these politics? Does he make the right decisions along the way? What government is able to hold him to different standards and rules? Uh, and, and the law of the jungle concept, you know, uh, I think... Well, yeah. putting, uh, sorry? <laughs> sorry, I was just saying law of the jungle, same as you. <laughs> <laughs> I think when we when we put in that a lot of this is uh is is he an effective hero is he making the right choices does he have to be that brutal uh so I know that some of these are creative interpretations of his history and the challenge always to find prosecutional prose prosecutory points and uh defensive points is is an interesting thing but uh but it was again it was a joy to read this character front to back he's not one that I'd ever done anything like that for so as we are moving into today's trial, we'll take it into five sections. Each jury member has been assigned one section, and afterward we will vote in each section to decide how culpable uh, Kazar is in each space. Uh, after each section, we will be voting one through five. This is the same, same scale we keep using in these shows. Number one means justifiable action. Two means morally concerning. Three is definitely inappropriate. Four is over the line into criminal behavior. And five is pure evil. We're going to start with section number one, which we are calling the 1960s. And the assigned jury member in this space is Alicia Wilder. The key issues I'll read in advance are X-Men number 10, Amazing Spider-Man 57 and 58, Daredevil 12 through 14 and 24, Amazing spider excuse me, and then X-Men 62 and 63. When a group of men tried entering the Savage Land, Kazar and Zabu repelled them, but they were captured on camera. Images of this quote-unquote savage went around the world, and the X-Men, thinking he might be a mutant, came to investigate. The Swamp Men captured Jean Grey and the Angel, and Kesar, after fighting Magor the Man-Ape, rushes to fight the tribe alongside the strange mutants. He uh, called a pack of mammoths to destroy their entire village. Kesar later, who had, after fighting a Tyrannosaurus Rex for fun, saw the Swamp Men trying to break his laws by attacking Skull Island, and he was furious, considering himself their master. Just then, a ship full of uh, outsiders arrived, and Kesar and Zabu attacked, discovering it was Parnival Plunder and his pirates aboard, as well as the hero Daredevil. When the ship exploded, Kesar and Zabu saved Daredevil with the juice of the, and I shit you not, the carnivorous juju plant <laughs> before... Before Plunder revealed that he was actually Kesar's brother, proving it when they both showed their half of the medallion that they carried, which apparently Kesar carries in his loincloth pocket, which is fantastic. When Kesar was distracted, they captured him in a cave, took him on board the ship, and then brought him back to England. While captive with Daredevil, Kesar went mad and attacked the hero. Daredevil helped free Kesar, who suddenly remembered his real identity as Kevin Plunder. When the criminal Slag was killed, and yes, his name was Slag, uh, Kesar was blamed and arrested and then taken to the court in England in chains. He broke free and then helped Daredevil defeat the Plunderer, uh, his brother Parnival's new costumed identity. 
Later, Caesar and Zabu were holed up in their castle as the military surrounded them, accusing him of being a murderer called the Midnight Stalker. Daredevil arrived to aid Kazar, who initially fought the hero, but they ended up working together to defeat the plunderer, who was actually the real Midnight Stalker. Visiting New York City for the first time, Kazar was tricked by J. Jonah Jameson into attacking Spider-Man in the streets. While Z uh, with Zabu, Kazar attacked Spider-Man, endangered civilians and damaged property. They defeated Spider-Man, but it turned out Spider-Man was briefly amnesiac. Once he felt better, he made amends with Kazar, and uh, then Kazar defended Spider-Man, attacking the police for him before leaving. Finally, later still, uh, Kazar fought the X-Men when they entered the Savage Land. He tracked the Savage Land mutates, uh, who were capturing innocent natives and taking them back to Magneto using the name Creator to be experimented on. Kazar soon teamed up with the X-Men to defeat Magneto and reverted the mutates to, the, uh, to their basic forms of tribesmen and tribeswomen. Uh, that covers the 1960s section. Let me turn it over to Alicia Wilder. Okay. First, I just want to say, Kazar aside, often when I read the older comics, I don't have moments of shock. Like, I, I don't have any surprise, like, oh my goodness, moments. Finding out that the creator was Magneto was the most exciting moment for me in 1960s comics. Just so... Oh. He opens a panel. He's in a weird costume. He opens a panel and you see his helmet and he goes, fashion makes the man. Yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> so anyway, I just needed to share that because that was a good moment for me. Um, so what this really boils down to is Kazar has a lot of trauma and he was left alone as a child in this jungle and witnessed his father being killed by this man, okay? The last of the eight men, okay? So he initially just thinks everything is an attack and he has to fend for himself all the time. In all of these instances, even when he's being, he's questioning someone, like when the X-Men first come to the Savage Land or when he first meets Daredevil or when Daredevil tries to save him and he starts to fight him. He just goes on instinct always. And I think that that's a trauma response from just being a child left alone in the Savage Land and he just needs to, to fight to fend for himself. He really doesn't have a strong understanding of what's right or what's wrong or personal connections with everyone. Another thing that I, I think is kind of a, a point for him to say that like nothing that he really does in these stories is evil is that in one of the stories um, when he's being accused of the these crimes that Daredevil then clears him of, Daredevil says, Kazar cannot tell a lie. So like if Kazar did something, he would say, I did this. If he didn't do it, he would say, I didn't do this. And he's very like black and white in that sense of like what he did, what he didn't do. And he won't, he won't lie to you. So I think really the basis of all of these stories is that he doesn't really have a broad understanding of how the world works outside of defense. He has spent his entire childhood defending himself and then taking on the mantle of deciding to defend the Savage Land that he doesn't know any other way to survive. Um, in all of these instances, he has this sort of code of honor where once he realizes that you're in danger, he does take it upon himself to be the one to save you and oftentimes uh, does think that he doesn't need any assistance in that, which is sort of a negative towards 
his character, but he will take the help once he realizes that he needs it. You know, like the X-Men come in and save him a couple of times and he's like, okay, great. Thank you for saving me, but I'm going to do the rest of this on my own. I really just think from all of these stories that he's just not a bad guy, at least in, in these stories. He doesn't think of it as anything other than saving these people the way that he saved himself, right? As a child, he had to save himself growing up in the Savage Land. And now he just holds this responsibility to this place that he holds sacred because it's the only thing that he has to hold on to. So he may, you know, be calling himself a self-proclaimed ruler of the jungle or lord of the jungle. But he, all of his actions are based in this idea that he has to save this land that he holds sacred, to save the people that you know, these other tribes are fighting because for all we know, all of those tribes tried to capture him at some point as a child and he saved himself. So even when he's going after Spider-Man, he's tricked. So basically he just is dumb. He doesn't know any better and he just fights first. That's what I've got to say. I, I wrote down answers to all of your questions, Chad, all of your, like, these are the points we need to kind of take in so does he have a right to be involved in Savage Land politics? Um, I think he has he has a he has a right because he grew up there to have some say. But does he have the authority to say he's the ultimate ruler over all of these other tribes and nations that exist? No, no, he doesn't. OK, um, is the force that he uses warranted? I'm going to say no. But I also think that it's because he doesn't have an education to understand reasoning. He just fights first. And so I think that's a trauma response for him. Um, is he responsible for property destruction when he's in civilized society? So that's a great question, Chad. But I think if you're going to ask it, you need to say if he's responsible, every superhero ever is responsible. And they're not. And they're not. So <laughs> you can't. Law of the jungle. Yeah. Not you know what the jungle is where he is. It's not his fault. And uh, is he an effective hero? Um, no, he's not a hero, but he's also not a villain. So he's very motivated by his own cause, which is to be the savior and the the here like what he considers the hero or the lord of the situation. But he's not really there to protect anyone for anything other than his own glory. But he doesn't do anything like he doesn't go to a group and decide he wants to attack them just for the sake of attacking them. He only does that in what he thinks is defending himself, defending the savage land or defending other people. So basically what I'm saying is he's not a bad guy. He just needs to be educated a little bit. Um, so I'm just telling you all, like, just, he's not evil. You can't say that he is, he didn't do anything wrong. If I chose one K-Star story, that's the most shocking. It's that daredevil three-part story where he goes back and he finds out who he is and he's got this evil brother and he's like a castle in England. You're like, what? <laughs> yeah. That's a wild story, right? It's crazy. It's totally wild. And that, but like, even when he's, so in that, in that story, he's then arrested. And because his brother said he was, he murdered someone who he didn't murder and he's arrested and he does like break free of his chains and like escape the police. But like anything that he does, isn't like, I'm going to then attack you. Anytime he's attacking someone, he's always attacked first or perceives that he's being attacked first. Like he doesn't know 
kind friendships. He's probably in the Savage Land never experienced, um, you know, someone coming up to him and being like, hey, dude, you want to be friends? It's probably like, hey, let's fight over this food or hey, I'm a dinosaur and I'm here to attack you, you know? So anytime someone else comes in, he perceives everything as a threat, but he also doesn't, he doesn't want to kill anybody. And when he's fighting Daredevil at one point, him and Daredevil are on the same side, but he doesn't know it when the ship appears in the Savage Land. He just assumes Daredevil's part of whoever these these pirates are plundering Skull Island. And once he realizes, like, he sees Daredevil fight in a valiant way and the ship explodes, he says, that's a good dude. So I'm going to save him because he did good things. And I'm just going to get these berries and bring them back to life and then say, go on your merry way because I like to be alone and handle my own business. But he actually cared to, to save Daredevil because he doesn't think people deserve to needlessly die. So I just think he's complex, you know? He just needs some education and some friends. He often says, I have no friends. But then he thinks Daredevil's his one his one true friend. So Besides Zabu. Right. But that's his brother. His brother's actually. 60s Daredevil comics are great, by the way. X-Men 60s comics, eh. <laughs> 60s Daredevil comics are amazing. I really yes, I did them, enjoy them. Uh, okay, what questions and comments do we have from our jury on this section that you may need to make your determination? I've got a question. Where does the trauma of having a brother named Parnival come into this? Because right? I just feel like Parnival was punching him and it's like in his body, you know, he may not remember it, but he remembers it, you know? Yeah, I think it's it play, It's probably like his original Savage Land, right? Was that brother. So he was probably beat up by his brother and then beat up in the savage lands he only knows defense carnival is for he sure. had a bad time with his father too yeah carnival is for sure on grinder using the tagline the midnight stalker that's for, that's for sure a thing no <laughs> <laughs> do we have any other questions or comments oh, on this section of history i it's a great point that you brought up of just it's what he knows, right? So if someone's there and he perceives it as a threat because he's been raised in this jungle where everything can be a threat, everything around him is either trying to attack him or steal from him. So he, he just lunges forward with that. I, I question it a little bit where he doesn't learn anything from these experiences over time. But at the same time, you know, he, he at least adds to the group of people he feels he can trust and or recognizes as operating in the same mental headspace as he is. Absolutely fair. Okay, let's vote. Uh, Hussein. I think I got to go for one here. I, I'm with Alicia. This is, uh, yeah, it, everything feels kind of safe and sound and like he fixes mistakes when he makes them and takes that responsibility. So I'm going to go for one. There, Steve. Law of the jungle. That's one. Justifiable actions. I will go next. It's also a one for me. Uh, Noel. Yeah, a one. Justin. It's one. You, you got to kill or be killed. It's law of the jungle, okay? Morally <laughs> concerning. Man doesn't know morals. What are you talking about? And Alicia. It's a one for sure. If I could vote zero, you know I would, Chad. That's a six out of 30, which is one of our lowest scores ever. That takes us to trial point two, which we are simply calling the 1970s. Things get savage for a while in the 1970s. After a series of adventures, oh, excuse me, the uh, the assigned jury member here is Justin Wilder. 
the key issues here are Kazar number one and two, Marvel team up number 19, back to the Kazar series with issues six, nine, and the first half of 10. And then uh, a, a story in Savage Tales number seven, part two of all places. Uh, okay, after a series of adventures in New York City, when Kazar was dating Barbara Morse, the biochemist and S.H.I.E.L.D. agent who would later become Mockingbird, although she was briefly the Huntress, there's a fun fact for you as well, uh, Kazar returned to the Savage Land with Zabu, immediately killing an attacking sea serpent and a shark. Now, no, not part of the trial, but the wizard Malgado captured Kazar and Zabu, intending to, intending to sacrifice them to the sun god Garak alongside Shanna O'Hara, who is newly in the Savage Land. Uh, Kesar soon defeated, defeated Malgado and Magor again. Uh, when Spider-Man came to the Savage Land, Kesar killed more dinosaurs to save him. Then they found Stegron trying to lead dinosaurs in a domination plot, and Kesar killed a T-Rex before stopping Stegron. Kesar and Zabu soon kill more pterodactyls, saving civilian. He then helped the civilian and his people kill a massive river monster. Kesar finds a dead dinosaur and realizes that someone is unjustly killing dinosaurs. And then the dead dinosaur's mate attacks and Kesar kills it. <laughs> then he goes after the hunter Tomas, who had been killing these beasts, to try and impress his dying father. <clears throat> the chief proclaimed his son Gregor to be the new chief, uh, sparking uh, Tomas to kill him and then flee into the jungle. Kesar chased him into the jungle and killed another dinosaur. This is the one that had just killed Tomas. So that's a complicated story, but there's lots of dinosaur killing. When a giant gorilla attacked Kesar, excuse me, attacked Zabu, Kesar savagely stabbed this creature and broke its neck. Then he was mesmerized by a dancing woman named Myrain. Uh, Kesar, who may have been a little hypnotized by her dance, was distressed when she was kidnapped by the cult of Kandura, who meant to sacrifice her to their god, a giant carnivore named Kandura. And he killed, Kesar killed a dozen men trying to save Myrain, but after he freed her, she was killed by the dinosaur anyway, as she had been mind-numbed by some of the cult's smoke. Kesar then killed that dinosaur and the other cultists, and one more cultist anyway. Let me turn it over to Justin. Under threat of your life, the law of the jungle demands one thing, kill or be killed. That's it. Beginning, end of list. You're either going to die or you got to kill something. Kazar leans himself into rash thinking, hasty actions. But could there even be another way when surrounded by such violent and ferocious beasts? We try and identify reasoning and intent to potentially walk away from something. But it's not so easy when animal functions take over and a sea serpent is coming for your throat. All right, You can't have a rash, civilized conversation something with fangs coming at your face. That serpent wanted to kill Kezar. He wanted to kill Zabu. The shark was just trying to join in on the bloodbath, trying to take advantage of a situation that he saw as an opportunity to get some food. Kill or be killed. Now, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, notorious for his bad luck. The Parker luck, as he always calls it. So, obviously, whenever he shows up somewhere, he's attacked. That, that's Spider-Man in a nutshell. Should he have been left to die? Should should Kazar not have intervened to protect Spider-Man? Kill or be killed doesn't necessarily extend to friends with the ability to protect themselves, but Kazar is a good man. 
he comes in and saves Spider-Man. And when he gets, I mean, it's an interesting point to see how these two men deal with their threats. Spider-Man ties the dinosaur up in his mouth with his webbing, while the blood-wet blade of Kazar deals with his dinosaur more permanently. There is no second attempt to be killed or to kill. Kill or be killed! Now, in this conflict with Stegron, these dinosaurs, they were innocent. I mean, I, I just want to come out and say that they were innocent. That's, that's not a good look on Kazar. They were led under the villain's sway. They were protecting who they thought were one of their own in the same way that Kazar did for Spider-Man. But Kazar needed to act to protect himself, to protect Zabu, to protect Spider-Man, to protect his world. Some might say that Kazar's actions are noble, but at the same time, they have this sense of selfishness. He's protecting only those who matter to Kazar and damn the rest of the dinosaurs to hell. I'm going to kill this T-Rex to send a message to the other dinosaurs so that they know, kill or be killed. Say it again. I'm going to say it so many times. That's my <laughs> argument. Now, to see Kazar save a stranger in trouble in the third arc truly speaks to his abilities to be a good hero, right? He, he doesn't know this civilian. He just sees... They're under attack, and he steps in and he saves them. And I think that, that this whole story really argues uh, the, the highlighted point between Kazar and Tom, Tommy, Tomo, Thomas? Tomas, I think. Tomas. Because Tomas is killing just for the thrill. There's no hunt. There's no need. It's just senseless violence to prove his worth and to try and, and lift up his station. And Kazar sees this as a threat to his people, his way of life, and wants to intervene, wants to stop. And I think it, it's interesting that in this story, when Kazar first interacts with this group of men, they're able to stop their attack and reconcile, to understand what's going on here and have this conversation. If only such peace could be brokered amongst the animals. That's just not the way of the jungle. Killer be killed. I mean, that gorilla... We were just going to talk about it. That gorilla was trying to kill his tiger brother. Kill or be killed. I will say, by the law of the jungle, if Zabu couldn't handle the fight that he found himself in, he probably should have died. I mean, it, it's kill or be killed on an individual level. But he's got a brother who's got his back. Because that's who Kazar is. Could you stand there as your brother was getting attacked and just watch and just say, well, there's law of the jungle. No, you couldn't. Because he's a good man. And, and let's just talk about this last part. A cult kidnapping a woman. They're the real villain, right? Gazar was hypnotized by the dancing Myrian and fueled by his aggression and, and just the, the dangers of what could be. It's kill or be killed, damn it. <laughs> I rest my case. Were you also hypnotized by the dancing of Myrian? I was, I was hypnotized by Kazar. Every issue. I'm just like, yeah, man. <laughs> Fucking right. You got to do it right now or you're going to die. And that's the one rule you have. That's all you know. You're raised by a tiger brother. There uh, there was an interesting kind of level of this is the era after Kesar, after spending years in the savage land, has gone back to the civilized world, quote unquote, and like had all these shitty experiences. And I feel like he just came back to the savage land like extra pissed. He's like, fuck you, monsters. <laughs> I'm going to kill all of you. I'm so mad. <laughs> What uh? What questions and comments from the jury do we have on this section, Steve? Yeah, on on that note about the monsters and Kazar's attitude, 
there are I have a moral quandary here. There are a lot of dinosaur killings, and at a certain point it starts to feel like it's not an accident. And throughout this series, my biggest question to you is this: like, yes, Kazar is often doing stuff to defend either himself or another human from a dinosaur. If he's the Lord of the Savage Land, is his role here to be a protector of the Savage Land and its denizens, i.e. the dinosaurs, the beasts themselves? Is he here for their preservation from the outside world and from humans? Or is he here as a human warden of the Savage Land to protect human outsiders when they come? Because he pushes off Roxxon and he pushes off other corporations, but a lot of these dinosaur killings in this particular era seem to be specifically because there are outsiders or humans getting involved where they should not. And then Khazar is killing the dinosaurs to protect the invaders or the interlopers. I'm starting to feel a little morally concerned by the um, the level of dinosaur killing. Are you just going to let Spider-Man die? Just... I mean, I'm, Spider-Man would be fine, <laughs> is my thought. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting because he could just like do what he was doing in the 60s comics where he would like subdue mm-hmm. and and be like don't do that again wasn't working we don't eat people <laughs> dinosaurs i know that tends to be more of shanna's deal is rescuing dinosaurs from getting stuck in holes in the mud uh that's like kind of her job <laughs> but kazar could learn from a little bit from that maybe uh do we have other thoughts on this section before we continue I, I just gotta say, Steve. I think um, I think that Kazar going after dinosaurs feels. I, I think that's what the Tomas story shows for me. Is like you do it for a reason, and there, there's one part here that I just don't want to ask you a question about in a second. But um, you know, but if they die, they die. The other dinosaurs are going to eat them. There, there are hundreds of thousands of them. You, you know, you have a relatively limitless supply and. Animals get eaten by other animals, and Kazar loves the jungle. He will, he will survive. You know, and and I'm not going to quote the line though. I'm just not going to quote the line. Just you can do it for me. <laughs> you know, and I, oh, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. okay. No, I'm I'm okay with that. But I think just the question I have for you is in the last one where Kazar, in the last example where my rain is is gets killed by a dinosaur. Does Kazar kill that dinosaur that? Eats Marin, or is it another dinosaur he just randomly kills? I believe he kills that dinosaur. Does okay. revenge? Yeah, which yeah. I mean, which why? <laughs> uh, because he was under the sway of a hypnotizing dance, and uh, you know, he was—he just wasn't in his right mind. He just seems a little murder happier right then and there. <laughs> there's, that story, there's that story where to- he finds the corpse of the dinosaur Tomas killed. Then he kills that dinosaur's mate. Then he goes after Tomas, who's killed by a dinosaur, and then he kills the dinosaur who killed Tomas. And you're like, who's the monster here? <laughs> yeah, he killed that guy's he killed the dead dinosaur's mate. Now I missed that part. That's more Yeah, wise, that right? that's concerning. But you know, it's well, like it's sort of like once the dinosaur gets the taste of human flesh, you know, you've <laughs> got to put it down. It's just he killed yeah. the dinosaur's mate because the mate happened upon him while he was there near the dead dinosaur. He had not killed the dead dinosaur, but the mate was attacking him as though he had. So in self-defense, he had to... And I think initially he he subdued the mate, but then Tomas and something happened. And so, so he ended up killing him. Yes. 
I'm picturing someone like scaling a cliff uh, and finding like an unprotected eagle's egg and like, oh, someone killed the daddy eagle. And then he sees the mommy eagle and kills the mommy eagle. It's like, oh, the poor babies are still unprotected. <laughs> it just seems like this is a thing that happens to Kazar on the daily. <laughs> Especially in the 1970s. Uh, okay, let's vote on this section. Uh, Alicia. I'm going to go two on this one because I think, you know, in the end, he's he's trying to be a hero. He's just trying to save the day, but he maybe uses a little bit more force, deadly force than needed. And uh, Hussein. I'm going to go two-ish here. Partly because of what Alicia said, and also, you know, it just feels like some of these I want some more clarity on, you know. So I'm going to go two-ish. There's, there were some things that irked me. Two-ish, got it, Steve. <laughs> I, I'm I'm definitely going to be going to a two. It is morally concerning. Um, I just want to know who Kazar protects and who he serves. Depends on his mood, uh, but it's also a two for me here, uh, Noel. Two if, for somebody who lives in the Savage Land. It doesn't seem like he understands dinosaurs and is just happy to kill them. <laughs> yes. He'll start to come around to understanding in uh, 2021 or so. And then uh, finally, Justin. Was Kezar about to get killed in each of these situations? So the only justifiable <laughs> response was to kill. Law of the jungle. Kill or be killed. One. <laughs> what? Right. This one is well, 11 out of 30. I, speaking as a white uh, American boy in upbringing, I feel like this was an era of culture where the idea of like killing a tiger or a lion in a jungle was kind of exciting because you'd figure there were just always more of them. And now we're operating in the 2020s from like an, a, a place of scarcity where we're realizing like eliminating these creatures is wiping them out. And reading these stories where he's like slaughtering things probably felt very different in the 70s than it does in the 2020s, obviously. Uh, but it's a, a fun story regardless. Okay, trial point three. This is the 1980s. This is uh, Steve's section. We're covering Marvel Team Up 104, Kazar the Savage 1 and 2, and then 10 through 12 and then 16, and then 21. And finally, Iron Man 202, which is a crazy story. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kesar hunted down and killed a T-Rex that had been marauding local villages. Then he was captured by AIM and put in an arena with the Hulk where he killed more T-Rexes before the villains were de de uh, defeated and fled. Kesar started getting frustrated with his new life in the jungle and he longed for human civilization, and his relationship with Shanna grew more serious. He soon found the hidden land of Pangea, uh, which we talked about earlier. Kazar fell in love quickly with uh, the, the native woman, Leanne, who was the queen of a tribe called the Lemurins, or the, the, the Lemurins, I suppose it's pronounced. Leanne said she loved Kazar, but he was too uncivilized for her. Later, when Leanne pledged herself to the winged set of the Aryans, Kazar lashed out at the Aryans in jealousy. Shortly after that, Kazar received or reached a moment where he could either save Shanna or Leanne, and he chose to save Shanna, letting Leanne plunge to her seeming death. And that story did come back to bite him later. Kazar, Shanna, and, and Zabu later entered a frightening hellscape with their allies Booth, who is a winged Teron, and Dirk a Pangean android, 
And they passed through a series of intense passages based on Dante's Inferno, where they uh, ended up facing the devilish foe Velasco in his first appearance, uh, who was, and this is like the literal guy from Dante's Inferno, like that that's who Velasco is, which is crazy. Uh, Velasco sought to make Shanna his mate as Velasco was uh, taking Shanna's soul to try to summon the Elder Gods. Kesar yanked his uh, his her magic necklace free, which then conscripted Velasco to another hellish realm and left him to die. I mostly kind of included this because nobody knows the origins of Belasco, and it's a crazy, it's a whole crazy conversation. Kesar built Shanna a treehouse as a sign of their love, but soon Ramona Starr landed in the Savage Land with her father, Bryce Portland, a scientist gathering plant specimens, and Kesar began flirting with Ramona killing creatures in order to impress her and then kissing her behind Shanna's back. When Shanna learned that Ramona was actually married to the man she claimed was her father, Ramona pulled a gun on uh, on them and they wrestled over it, but the gun went off and Kesar was shot in the head. This then resulted in a series of long adventures where he's wounded and Ramona is using a poison to control him until he's freed. It's a whole wild story. Go read it if you're interested. Uh, while Kazar was wounded, Shanna told Peter Parker the story of how she and Kazar first hooked up. And we flash back to a series of panels where they're basically like punching each other in the face until they end up having sex in the jungle. After the Savage Land was destroyed, Kazar and Shanna moved into Avengers Mansion, and he got very bored with Shanna and started calling her bad names. Uh, he got into a fight with a bunch of truckers, and then he teamed up with Iron Man at Avengers Mansion and helped fight the Fixer in a fight in a truly bizarre battle. Uh, so this is a section with lots of misogyny and murder and crazy adventures and love triangles. Uh, let me turn it over to Steve. Uh, where to begin? Um, <clears throat> I'll start by saying the good things in Kazar's defense here. In Kazar's defense, he doesn't commit nearly any to maybe any at all of what we would consider crimes under the American legal system. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't do any property damage, really. He doesn't do any killings within the bounds of the country or of human beings, necessarily. Uh, he doesn't really do much in the way of violent villainy or anything like that. But the main thing that Kazar does do is a whole lot of relationship crimes. Just a ton of crimes against women, against one woman in particular. And, you know, like, again, in his defense, they're not, they're not serious crimes necessarily. Like, we'll get into it, but the fight there does not really constitute domestic battery so much as it constitutes a really hot hookup. <laughs> but <laughs> let's start at the beginning, shall we? Uh, I last section I was excoriating Kazar for killing dinosaurs. Here I'm going to defend him in this case. <laughs> Crime strike again, yes. Uh, Kazar in uh, in the jungle, he kills this T-Rex at the very beginning. This T-Rex has been causing problems in killing the local inhabitants, both animal and man uh, throughout the Savage Land. Something had to be done, and sometimes a rabid dog does need to be put down, unfortunately. I, in Kazar's defense in this section, for Marvel Team Up specifically, I want to say that Nobody ever teams up with the Hulk. You're just kind of there when the Hulk wrecks a place and you maybe make it out. But Kazar, for his part, does, at the end of his alleged team up with the Hulk, offer the Hulk a safe haven in the Savage Land, somewhere where he can be at peace and somewhere where he can be alone. And the Hulk says this really confusing thing about how, no, he'll have to deny the offer because he just wants peace and to be left alone. 
and then he goes off somewhere else, presumably to menace other humans. But Kazar does try to end the Hulk's rampage by offering him a place to be, and I think that's I think that's worthy, and I think that's noble. Then we get into Kazar the Savage, and it is just a litany of crimes that Kazar is committing against his girlfriend Shanna. Shanna and Kazar are spending a lot of time in the jungle dealing with regular Savage Land things, rescuing dinosaurs from pits and stopping villagers from getting eaten by T-Rexes, stuff like that. And through it all, Shanna and Kazar are kind of having this tension because they don't really know where their relationship has been going for all this time. Shanna wants to move a lot closer and is thinking about commitment to Kazar, who she clearly has fallen very deeply in love with. Kazar is very attracted to Shanna and finds her interesting and thinks maybe he loves her, but he doesn't have the fully adult sensibilities um, to really pay attention to her, at least the attention that she deserves. He doesn't listen to her ever. He sees her mostly as an object for his affection and doesn't really pay a lot of attention to her needs or her desires in their relationship. And while this could be attributed to him growing up in the jungle alone, at this point he's spent a lot of his time meeting other adult humans and there are other adult humans in the Savage Land as much as, you know, like the white colonialist lens would maybe not have us think, but the fall people are adult people with real relationships and Kazar not having learned any of that in all this time is honestly more indicative of misogyny and of his terrible man-child attitude, which at one point Shanna brings up hilariously in a line that struck me dead when I read it. <laughs> when she says, you're pushing 30 now, it makes sense for you to have a midlife crisis. And I was just like, shut the fuck up. Are, <laughs> what are you talking about? What, let's what? let's pump the brakes on that. You're about to be thirty. It's time to have a midlife crisis. Jesus Christ! <laughs> Everybody needs to hold on in the Savage Land. But <laughs> throughout all of this, basically, Channa is like, I would I would love to have more commitment to you. And Kazar is like, well, you know, maybe we should like get married or something, you know, or you know, like I would like to make more of a commitment. And but things get in the way, and unfortunately, he's separated from her when he goes to Pangea. And as a result of meeting this Leanne, who he's known for like a day, he decides he's fallen in love with her like he's Piotr Rasputin in Secret Wars or something. He's just immediately fallen in love with this other girl in this other place, forgotten about most of what's been going on. And at one point, when at one point when he says he wants to make a commitment to this new woman and she doesn't want to, he calls her a big hypocrite, which I think is glaringly terrifying because it comes in the same issue where he was already like, maybe Shanna and I should get married. <laughs> Well, and side note, Shanna also hooks up with a furry man with a tail while she's yes, there, so uh, Sap, I believe was his name, right? Yes, Shanna also hooks up with somebody else, which Kazar is unreasonably mad about later. Extremely jealous, uh, and unfortunately, does end up calling her a green-eyed monster in the process of expressing his jealousy because he just cannot cannot get with it. Kazar's a pretty toxic dude at this point in his life. Um, Throughout all these adventures, he generally ends up saving Shanna's life several times. He does sh save Shanna's life from Belasco in a hilarious moment where he completes his bloodstone pentagram and all Kazar has to do is rip the necklace off. If only magic had ever thought that that was a possible solution to Belasco. The entire time, I didn't know that the solution was right here in the first story. Also, I want to side note, it is absolutely infuriating that we see that Belasco, as a human, had an arm and went into ice frozen with that arm and then is unfrozen and within like literally a day 
has no arm and is never going to be mentioned, is never going to be explained why that arm is missing. And that is infuriating and kind of cool. It's He's the Elder Gods. It's the Elder. They must have taken the arm when they made him horny. He has horns now on his head. But yeah, the Belasco stuff aside, that's that's all really fun. It gives uh, Kazar a chance to actually save uh, Shanna's life. And Kazar does, through a lot of dangers to Shanna and Zabu, start to understand over the course of the series that these people matter to him. And if he lost them, it would be a problem for him, which I know seems obvious, but for a man with a growth as stunted as Kazar, I guess this is really an epiphany. And that does make him want to settle down with Shanna. And I, I think there's a lot of credit to be given to him for his growth, his emotional growth, and his better treatment of Shanna as a result. Mm, a marriage proposal that comes in the midst of intense danger as they're escaping while he's literally having a panic attack is maybe not the most authentic expression of love. And unfortunately, that does come out later when they're, after having lost everything, and I think that should be taken as a mitigating factor, the Savage Land has been destroyed completely, and everything Kazar has known for his entire second life has been lost. He's living in the concrete jungle of New York, a more frightening jungle than any he's ever known, babysit by the Avengers. He's with his wife, who is now pregnant, uh, and he decides immediately that he needs to go find himself on a four-day cross-country trip to California and just get away. He needs to be away from her. He needs to not be here. It sucks, and I honestly have no defense for this part. I think the strongest prosecution comes in the, for the form of the fact that at the end of this run, Tony Stark, Iron Man, Anthony Stark, the man, has to give Kazar good relationship advice for how to treat a woman, and that's necessary. <laughs> If, if you find yourself in a position where you need to get good advice on relationships with women from womanizer Tony, Tony Stark, then you have a lot of work to do. You are not in a good place. Tony literally goes, hey, I've lost a lot of good women by acting like you, and I just got to say, maybe you shouldn't like leave your wife alone when she's pregnant. She probably needs you really badly right now. And then Kazar uh, beats up the fixer with his bare hands and makes Tony look like a complete asshole, which kind of rules. So that's a plus. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, let me hear from the jury on this section. I just don't know how I feel throughout your entire points, all the points you were making, I was fluctuating between the numbers I was voting in my head. I, it's interesting to kind of hear like over the decades, how the characters' complexities increase and their choices become more questionable. And also don't take advice from Tony Stark. If you can avoid it. I feel like that's like a that's a point against. Yeah, I feel like that's <laughs> that's morally. The thing is, it, at the it was good. It was good advice. That seems off brand for Tony. If you're in a position where you need good advice from him, then you've you've really fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Other questions or comments on this section. The uh, the Belasco story here, this is an alarmingly consistent character. The I want to worship the elder gods. I need the souls of the innocent who I also want to mate with in order to do it. It's a wild story. He's in this like, he's in this like 
a dimensional machine built in Pangea with all these weird characters from different tribes. It's a bizarre story. So anyone who knows Belasco from like the magic and limbo stories like we do, uh, this is his origin space. He's a he's a crazy character. And again, he's the guy from Dante's Inferno. Uh, his whole origin is like he went with Dante to hell and like raped his wife. And like there's there's this whole thing. It's It's a crazy. It's a crazy origin. Uh, Steve, can you uh, can you share your thoughts with me on Ramona Starr, who is weirdly one of my favorite villains ever? Uh, yeah. Thank you. I forgot to get to Ramona Starr. What a weird character. <laughs> she spends she spends most of this time pointing a sniper rifle at either Kazar or Craven's head. Like just a lot of that going on. It's it's really interesting. She's a character who I feel like I would have followed out of the pages of this. Like if if spinning out of this had been like a Ramona star side comic. I actually would have read it because I, I don't know, like the whole thing with her father is so weird. Her, her poisons, her work as a foil to Craven, the hunter and her like obsession with Kazar. All of that is like so interesting. She shoots Kazar in the head and then controls him with potions. Cause she's horny for him. Basically. She's like, I want to yeah. have sex with you and you're going to do what I say. And you're mine. And she's a, a crazy villain. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of love her. Do we yeah, have- she's, really interesting i i don't know if she's the one who says it but i i it might have been shanna but i thought it was ramona who says at one point in this to craven i don't know whether to hate you or kiss you which is the kind of like ridiculous cheesy sexist dialogue i expect but also like compelling do we have other thoughts on this section before we vote uh let's go ahead uh oh i'm sorry go ahead no, I was just going to spin off Felicia before. You know, just 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 thinking about how these comics are such reflections of their times, like the racism of the juju plant from the '60s, and then like just the oozing misogyny of the '80s. It's like there's no like these are really time capsules of what was happening in the country at the time. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's both really cool and really disgusting. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, okay, I'm gonna vote first here. I am gonna give this section a three, a two. I'm gonna go with a two. Uh, Noel. Yeah, I think I'm gonna go with two. It's, yeah. Justin. It's a two for me. Alicia. I don't know <laughs> if I want to do two or three. All right, peer pressure. I'll do two. Uh, Hussein, I'm gonna go four on this one. You know, if he's doing Shanna dirty and he's just randomly killing animals, like all the things I was trying to explain before, now nah, he's a four. And then finally, Steve, I'm giving it a three. Uh, it is definitely inappropriate. I, I can't call it criminal behavior, but some of it should be. <laughs> This one's a 15 out of 30. We uh we won't delve into it deep here, but the whole relationship with Shanna and Kesar in the series we talked about, uh, Shanna's like a smart woman who's wearing a bikini in the jungle and like the man who can tame her, like he has to beat her up before they mate. And now she's all like all into him. The whiters are all white. The artists are all white. And when Kesar hooks up with someone, it's fine. But when he's, when Shanna hooks up with someone, he's like, fuck you, how could you do this to me? Uh, like it's uh, there, there's a lot of interesting commentary, but Shanna is great in this series. And uh, this section, I, I super want to do a Belasco trial one day, but I'm going to take my time. But I have like four characters just from this section that I want to do Patreon episodes on there. There's, yeah. there's a lot of jewels in the, uh, in the Kazar the Savage series. 
before we move on, I do want to touch on that because we mentioned the scene where uh, he hits Shanna. And I just want to point out because it may sound to people listening to the trial like this is a case of domestic abuse and technically maybe in our society it would be. In the comic, it is portrayed very specifically as a fight between equals, uh, not for dominance of each other, but as foreplay in the style of Klingons. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's honestly, it's hot. I highly recommend going to read it. <laughs> um, it's phenomenal. I think it's, what is that? That's uh, Kazar the Savage 21, I think it is. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Really good. And she's telling all this to Peter Parker. She's like, he hit me. I slapped him and I spit in his eye. He tried to rake my back. I tried to stab him in the guts. And sooner or later, we were just fucking. And Peter Parker the whole time is like, yeah, and then? And then? <laughs> <laughs> all right, fantastic. Uh, trial point four goes to uh, Noel. This is the 1990s, where every story suddenly changes to companies trying to illegally exploit the resources of the Savage Land. Uh, the key issues here are Marvel graphic novel, Kesar, The Guns of the Savage Land, number one. Yes, that's the title. And also Kesar of the Savage Land, number one. And then the Mark Wade series, Kesar from 1997, uh, numbers one through four. And that series is during the Heroes Reborn era, where all the heroes disappeared in Onslaught, and then Kesar gets the title. And it's pretty good, actually. Okay, after the tribes of the Savage Land joined together and rejected his rule, Kesar moved back into his castle with Zabu and lived as a savage for a time. While Shanna visited him, he accosted her, seemingly with the intent to rape her, before she calmed him down. Kesar was recruited to help stop an oil company that had invaded the Savage Land. He regularly argued with company leader Wyatt Wingfoot, killed dinosaurs, and, well, used machine guns to lead the natives of the Savage Land into killing the oil tycoons. The tycoons killed double the amount of natives in return, as a retaliation. When Shanna questioned Kesar, he threatened her with a knife, reminding her that she was his woman. In the end, Kesar killed the oil tycoon leader, and Shanna left him in the Savage Land. When the Rand Meacham Company began exploiting resources in the Savage Land, Kesar shockingly addressed the United Nations and said that they had his blessing to do so. When the alien machines mutated tribesmen, Kesar assumed they were an invading army and killed many before fighting Sauron, who was also mutated by the machines in order to shut the machines down. Missing civilization, Kesar began hiding technology from his wife. She was back at this point. Though it was later used by the hunter Gregor to attack the savage land and kidnap the baby Matt. They pursued Gregor into the frozen snow and beat him, then tortured and bound him up before leaving Parnival, before learning Parnival was behind it all. Kesar went to New York City and attacked Parnival, causing massive chaos and property destruction. And let me turn it over to Noel. Yeah, so my section was a little rough for Kesar. Um, and really, the main thing to me that stuck out is the comics reckoning with colonialism uh, of companies, but also by Kesar. Um so when he he'd been in exile back in back home in England and then he returns with Wyatt Wingfoot and he just unjustly starts referring to himself as the rightful lord of the savage land even though he'd been deposed so he literally doesn't care what the people of the savage land think he thinks that he deserves to be in charge and ruling over them 
And he's also extremely paternalistic to them. He describes them as children and just kind of untouched by modern civilization, very reminiscent of like descriptions of Native Americans back in the day by white people. Uh, it gets pretty gross. And he and he just doesn't seem to recognize the people in the savage land that he's lived among his entire life as like fully human or respect any of their own rights to agency. Um, and then he finds out that Pluto fuel has come in and is exploiting um, the land for oil. And he decides they have to be stopped, which is not wrong. But he basically like wants to go to war with them. And he kills a bunch of workers, which results in twice as many savage landers being murdered by Pluto fuel. So like he's directly responsible for those deaths. And the savage landers also like explicitly tell him they don't want to be part of this fight. Like they're not interested. They seem fine with what's going on, but he kind of goads them into going to battle against um, the Pluto fuel people. He gets some of them killed and he does get some dinosaurs killed again. And he just seems to have no respect for like their lives. He literally takes them into this despite their initial um, declining to do so. And important to note here that he does all of this in spite of the fact that the head of the Pluto fuel forces says that he, Hazar, owns controlling stock in Pluto fuel. So he could legit go home to England and figure this out, right, without getting all of the Native people killed when they didn't want to do that. So I, that that just really stuck out to me. I was like, you have the ability to do something about this without getting them killed? What are you doing? Uh, then he does the stuff to Shanna. Two separate times, he seems to be about to rape her. Um, and then the part about, like, you're my woman, you have to do whatever I say. That's not great. And then he, like, seems to also partition the savage land which is not great between like the people who are being affected by the machines and his people and his allies. But, like there's a wall and they're repelling them. So that just was a little gross. And then he gets a bunch of people killed over his hiding of technology. And I think it was a chief of one of the tribes gets murdered over a couple walkie talkies. He brought those there. So lots to prosecute him on on the defense side. I don't know if intentions count for defense, but he does. He is trying to do his best to protect the land and the people that he loves. Um, he's building alliances, you know, trying to keep um, like modern or outside people from influencing the land and everything. Um, and he also does help the people near the machine who are being transformed, although most of the credit should go to Shanna for that. She figured out the machine. He was there. He fought Sauron. He he helped. Um, and then when he's in the property destruction thing, it's when he's fighting um, Carnival. So that's just superhero villain fights, you know, pretty standard. I don't think that we can hold that too much against him. And, you know, overall, he's trying to help and protect the land and the people that he cares about. He just doesn't 
think things through. I think Kazar being dumb is kind of a through line so far, and it is here as well. The story that I referenced, uh, the Kesar, the Guns of the Savage Land, is my easily my least favorite Kesar appearance. It's a rough read. I, I Noel, I assume you would concur. Yeah, yeah, not not great. It does not hold up well. Uh, what questions or <laughs> comments do we have from our jury on this section of uh, very misogynistic case? <laughs> do you think, Noel? Do you think that the reasoning, like what you said about him having, you know, stock in the company and being able to kind of go back and do something, do you think that that choice to not do that came from a place of like seeking? glory and wanting to like prove that he could be the true lord of the tribe of savage land or do you think it came from being dumb and not thinking that that was really not thinking that through as an option i think it's more the former like i don't i think he kazar sees one way to solve problems and it's to fight and it could be that he's too dumb to even know that like that is a real possibility, but he was also like in England for a while before this and just sort of like pouting in his castle um, with Zabu. And so I don't know, there's very much like this, unless he is where he wants to be and he's able to do exactly what he wants to do, there seems to be this lack of curiosity, I guess. Um, and he's, he he's he really most... wants to take back over. He's most like his biological father in this section. He's he's become his dad for a minute. He's he's not he's not a very sympathetic character in this era until Mark Wade gets his hands on him, and then he's and then he's much better. In the late nineties, he's very fleshed out, and it's it's actually pretty good. He just feels, feels like, like a Batman who actually does not buy crime. <laughs> yeah. Just like in the case that Batman has actually bought crime and then fights the rest of it, but like Kazar is just fighting and no buying. Sure, sure. No, when uh, when Chad introduced your section, he said something about Shanna needing to to calm him down when they first connect. Is he sort of out of control at any point? When he is in exile, it's a pretty sad scene of him kind of in the dark with Zabu in his castle. He's you know just kind of like the messy like. Um, kind of abandoned place. Um, and so I don't think he's in a good emotional state at that point. And she kind of helps him there. Um, but he he kind of gets on this mission, like to get back to the Savage Land and she's not really able to influence what he wants to do very much. So so it's not like he devolved. It's just he was being a rich entitled boy. Right, yes. World wasn't going his way. Got it. Thank you. Other questions in this section? Justin, you vote first. I'm going to go four. It just feels like he's popping off everywhere and making everything worse. Uh, Alicia? I'm going five. Yeah, that's right. Five. <laughs> you are a jerk in this case, are. You're a big jerk and you just want power and you're doing it for bad reasons. The same. I'm gonna go four here. Um, same as before. I think the way he treats Shanna, uh, Shanna, and uh, you know the fact that he's just looking to punch things at this point. 
he's like uh Wolverine gone uh and is one of his berserker rages without actually going into a berserker rage. Steve. Yeah, I also think four is justifiable. I think that he's in uh negligence of his duties as Lord of the Savage Land in almost all aspects at this point. Noel. Five. All right. It is also a four for me, which gives us 26 out of 30 in that section. That was a rough one. The uh if you read the entire Grant Grenwald, not Grenwald, Mark Wade series, uh, there's some pretty good moments in it. He fights Thanos in this series, which is crazy. Kazar versus Thanos. Uh, it's uh, but it's pretty decent, and the art by uh, by Adam Kubert is gorgeous. It's really, really pretty. The Rhino stuff in that series is really good for those of you that are familiar with it. Uh, it's it's really beautifully done. Okay, and then finally, trial point five, which we are calling the two thousands. The jury member here is Hussein. The key issues here are Marvel Comics presents volume two, numbers five through seven, just the KSR stories. A series called Scar, who's the son of the Hulk, Scar, the King of the Savage Land, numbers one through five. Kesar, volume four, numbers one through five. And then finally, Kesar, Lord of the Savage Land, numbers one through five. They all have very similar titles sometimes, which just makes it hard to distinguish between them until you look at the year or the writer. When Killer Shrike, who's a random Marvel villain, led a group of Roxxon employees to ravage the Savage Land, and they killed many locals, Kesar and Zabu attacked, a war broke out, and Kesar worked with Shanna, the Savage Land mutates, and Devil Dinosaur, Stegron, and Moon Boy to repel them. It turns out, again, that Parnival the Plunderer was behind this. Kesar, wearing a suit, then tried acting as a peaceful representative for a coalition of the tribes in the Savage Land at the United Nations, and he encouraged them to form treaties with outside nations and organizations. When Shanna and Zabu were taken over by the entity The Designer, one of the original creators of the Savage Land, the tribes united behind her as she slaughtered the United Nations delegates. They ordered Kesar to leave their lands, but he fought back, uniting with the various tribes and bizarre allies, several, several of them from other timelines as they had passed through a wormhole, in order to fight the designer and to free Shanna from his control. In the end, the designer possessed Umbu, the unliving, another random Marvel villain, and he was destroyed. Note that during this time, Kesar realized he needed to focus more on his family, and then he proclaimed Scar, son of Hulk, king of the Savage Land, Shortly after this, he became an agent of Wakanda, and then he was killed in the Empire event by the Kotati, but then revived by the Nuwali machines, which granted him superpowers for the first time. This also kind of happened to Shanna, but we're not putting him on trial for that part. Soon after that, the tribes of the Savage Land had an official council for the first time, inviting representation from every tribe, and they realized that due to poverty and starvation, they had been trading resources with the outside world, who were still seeking to exploit the resources of the Savage Land. While debates were happening, there was a massive explosion resulting in an oil spill, and Kesar worked with the tribes afterward to help them reclaim their independence, clean up the disasters, and get out of poverty. You can see the intelligence and the maturity of these stories and the sensitivity in the modern comics uh, in a much different way. Uh, let me turn it over to Hussein. Great. Thanks, Chad. I, I have to say, I really, as somebody who doesn't get into Kazar, I really, really enjoyed uh, a lot of these stories. And this is sort of what Scar was interesting to me at the point in his story. So that particular Scar, uh, King of the Savage Land, was really just fantastic. 
Um, so with the Marvel Comics Presents, this is where Killer Shrike Roxxon is coming in. And it's like the second panel you see corpses of natives of the Savage Land, native inhabitants of the Savage Land sort of stacked on top of each other. And Killer Shrike saying, what did these cavemen think they were going to do? Uh, I guess our 21st century weapon, something like that. And just brag, Shrike, just bragging about killing them before Zabu and uh, Kazar appear and destroy them. And it's got to be one of the most violent and brutal like mainstream Marvel titles I've read, like in ways that shocked even my Wolverine sensibilities. Um, like it was really graphic. But I was like, but you start with a whole bunch of people that Kazar is responsible for keeping safe and you see their bodies stacked up. And you're like, I'm I'm okay with this. Like this is a defense uh, of his people and of his land. Um, and I can understand where sort of you get upset by the um uh the killing. Uh, but I kept thinking back, there's this great episode of uh the Battlestar Galactica, the 2003 Battlestar Galactica series. I don't know if any of you all watched that, but there's this great scene where the humans are being chased by the robots, the Cylons. This is for our listeners who may not be aware. And they're sort of kicked out uh, onto a planet, and they're sort of um, they're kept under guard by the Cylons. And the humans start planning this resistance, and you can't help but cheer for the human resistance. And it's when, just after the U.S. had invaded Iraq, and people, you know, you see this news where, like, we have to tame the wild Iraqis because they're nothing but violent savages who are launching these attacks, and then you're cheering for the humans who are doing the exact same thing against the Cylons. And it felt like this moment where, like, we shouldn't be killing people and we shouldn't be uh but then you've got these people who are coming in and trying to take the land and of course you should be defending your land and, and trying to kill them and it sort of felt like in that moment and time wise it was it actually fit really really well in terms of when this was published and the debate that was happening uh at the time in the US so it just it just felt really smart and pointed um with the scar series this is where this is where I start having really more issues with Kazar. So what happens is uh, Shanna is taken over by the designer of this Nuwali alien. And she comes in and is slaughtering these diplomats in the middle of this parliamentary meeting. And then says, do you want to vote for me as your leader? As she's holding up somebody's severed head. It's off panel. That's what I'm imagining. She's holding up somebody's severed head. And is like, you want to vote for me as your leader, right? I'm holding this imaginary severed head here. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, you know, a good number of the tribes vote yes. And uh, Kazar goes to the UN representatives who are leaving. It's like, why are you leaving? Well, the duly elected representative of your people said, get out. And he says, but she did this after murdering somebody and in suggesting that she would murder everybody who didn't vote for her. And it wasn't a unanimous vote. And the UN representative says, yeah, but that's democracy. The majority wins. And it doesn't matter that there are people opposed to this. And for me, it was a really interesting question, which is, is it anti-democratic to stop anti-democratic forces for running for election in a democratic society? And I wish we had a modern-day parallel I could point to, and sarcasm hashtag. Uh, and, you know, it, it was a really interesting question about democracy and, you know, anti-democratic forces in a democracy. Again, sort of gets left behind. But for me, Kazar sort of running roughshod over the will of the people who are challenging him, right? The sort of, even before Shana comes up, people are saying, you're not of the savage land. Who are you to tell us what to do? There's a bit of criticism of white saviorism going on in here. And I think yeah. 
you know, Kazar gets slapped around a little bit with this in the series, which I really, really liked. And I think sort of passing the mantle off to Scar helps tremendously because Scar is not of the people either, but he's more of the people than Kazar is. Um, or at least that's the way they try to set it up. I, again, I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, but it feels like this is a really good critical series about who's in charge of Savage Land and why. Um, and is power really the only um, result? And then the Lord of the Savage Land series, which is with Polly Scion and Matthew, uh, you know, the, the kid. There's these this is where 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 uh Kazar and and Shane are growing Shan are growing into their powers of the, from the New Holy Machines. And it was just great because I think again it's this sort of moment where here's this thing that wants to attack the Savage Land, and the only way Kazar is able to stop it is by destroying parts of the Savage Land. And he gets called out for it a couple of times. And it's a really great, like we had to destroy the village in order to save it type criticism, you know. And, and again. And the art on the series was just so trippy. I loved it. I love that fantastical trippy art. But here I feel like, I feel to me all my series were just extensions like, what will you do to save is the Savage Land, right? And is it justified in what you're doing? And I just don't know how to how to do it. And then with the with the with the um, Burning Season series, which is the oil spill, reclaiming the independence, and getting people out of poverty. There's a real, for me, a sense of, yes, we're devolving Kazar's uh, uh, authority out of this. Uh, and this is a community of people that he's responsible for. And how do you empower those people? But again, it still feels like it's a little bit of white saviorism and neoliberal economics. Like, you know, how did the savage land get impoverished in the first place? Let's, that's really the real evil here. Not how do we get them into a, an international trade system, which keeps going up. So I know I'm not making a coherent for and against argument, but it feels to me thematically, like, do you believe the, you know, Kazar has the right to do what he needs to do to save the people of the Savage Land? And if so, who gave him that authority? Or do you believe that there are certain rules that even Kazar can't come against? Yeah. For me, and sorry, Chad, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit on the voting, but for me, this is consistently a three because these are really some of the most nuanced stories that I keep running up against. And it's like, Aside from the Marvel Comics Presents, where it's very clearly, yes, kill all the rocks on people because they're here to kill everybody else. This is very clearly a case of self-defense. This is like, yeah, I agree with what you're doing, but I feel like there are better ways to do it. The maturity of these series, particularly the last one, is fascinating. The ideas of you want democracy, but only if it's done smartly, right? The idea of you want to help people govern themselves, but they may do the wrong thing. And sometimes in order to survive, we have to make deals with darker forces that may want to try to exploit us. And Kazar's like uh, learning of this after the era where he's gunning people down with machine guns, right? Like he's he's now in this space where he's handling the complexity or maturity of all this. And then the decision to focus on his family. Uh, that last series, The Lord of the Savage Land, as we discussed, is just beautiful. Easily my favorite, because our story, if I had to choose just one that stands out, and it's the most recent. What questions or comments do we have from the jury on this section? It's, it's interesting because, Hussein, you're talking about how you know, he, he's seemingly trying to, to do something positive, but... I think the question that you're raising is, is is he the one that should be doing this and is he going about it the right, right. way? 
and and that makes me conflicted because it's like oh wow yeah he's, he's trying but also like you're making it worse and you're you're kind of the self-appointed or or reappointed uh figure in a society that we can take care of ourselves potentially most interesting thing to me in these particular stories especially lord of the savage land is that for the first time we see kazar himself thinking about those questions like it's it's not just the stories that are saying like should kazar have this authority should it does he really have this authority or is it just an imposition of his will through power those are things that we have been asking as readers, and those are things that occasionally stories have asked, but this is the first time that I can recall seeing Kazar himself have the internal dialogue yeah. of like, am I am I the lord of this place? Should I be the lord of this place? Should somebody else? Is this right? And I think that goes a long way for me in in these in these particular runs, in this newer runs, both to making me like the stories and to making me like Kazar. There's a there's a funny there's a funny scene with his son who's now a teenager randomly where he's like my mom is Shanna and my dad's Kazar maybe I should call myself Shazar no I don't mm. want that it's cute. Matthew drives me insane I, that, I hate that kid <laughs> he's yeah, a big it's a caricature of a teenage boy yeah <laughs> what were you gonna say Hussein I'm sorry. I don't know. I was just gonna say that you know, uh, you know, uh, listening to sort of the feedback, and this is part of why I love the trials, right? It's like you think deeply because you know you're gonna get into a good conversation, and then like listen to people's feedback. It's like is is Kazar is he he he's the self-styled Lord of the Savage Land, but he works most effectively as a protector of the Savage Land, and he's conflating protecting with lordship, and that feels very fascistic. Right. It feels like, yeah, you can't be safe unless you give it to the strong man. Right. And that, like that just and I think that's the thing that keeps it's not just the colonial. What, it, OK, so I, I should be clear. I think Kazar's family has a long history of colonialism. I think he's got a bit of white. He's got a lot of white savior complex going on. But he himself, I don't think is colonial. The same way, but there's a lot of fascism in him baked into his into his story and the way he sees himself. He doesn't know what that line is, right? Because lordship yeah. to him is lordship to him means protector and ruler. He doesn't know that right. there could be right. two roles. Yeah. Or that one role doesn't need to fucking exist at all. <laughs> but... Well, exactly. And I think that's what Scar did really well. Is like he he tells Scar, he says, You're a leader because you mobilized people. Right? You weren't destroyed. And like he makes it explicit a couple of times. Like he said, I think these series are just fantastic for. We're unpacking some of this. So I, I really just really enjoyed he's this. The, he's the Captain America of the Savage Land. It's an interesting <laughs> concept to explore. Uh, I mean, in a very different way, because the laws are different, but trying to unite the people and represent the best side, but people are critical of what he's doing. It's They're interesting concepts here. Uh, also, Hussein and I can uh, understand this. When you have a teenager, you go through some changes yourself. Because <laughs> Arnaud has a teenage son. It's a different time in his life. And he has superpowers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Marvel is doing a lot of on Krakoa as well and in this Kazar series they're doing a lot of like plant-based technology plant powers uh, my clothes are made out of fungus and I can use these things and uh, Forge's computers are all like plant tech now it's 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 super interesting uh, yeah. to see the, the change in the world uh, any other questions on this section before we wrap up okay let's vote uh, Hussein you said your vote was a three Okay, and then uh, let's go with Steve next. Um, I'm going to give it a two, if only because there's some... I mean, I, I may have missed some stuff. I kind of glossed over these sections when I was reading, but 
most of the time he he does some things that make me very uncomfortable. Like Hussein says, he has some like he has some fascistic tendencies that obviously come from his upbringing and from being a lord and calling himself a lord and actually being one. Yeah. But in in general, I see a Khazar who's moved a lot more towards trying to understand the will of the people, and I respect that a lot in this character who I did not expect much from. Uh, it's a two for me as well, Noel. Second bridge. I'm gonna go two just because he is showing growth. Like that that feels like it matters to me that he is moving in the right direction. Justin. Yeah, I think it's too, uh, you know, he started out with, he was fine doing what he's doing, and then he kind of swung far the other way, but now he's at least grappling with a middle ground and and his nature and how he relates to this world, too. And finally, Alicia. I also am going to go to, I think, it's the same thing that everyone is saying, This just this idea that he's starting to acknowledge that maybe it it shouldn't be him. And kind of struggling with that thought, but making choices to change feels, feels you know, feels okay. Uh, which gives us a, uh, goodness, 15 in this section, total score of 72 when you add them all up out of 180, which gives Kazar a final score of 40%, which is one of our very lowest. I have been fascinated. I was fascinated researching this character because, it, again, it's just not one we spend time on. I'm fascinated talking about him and his complexities. Uh, he's a he's a really interesting character who's gone through a tremendous amount of growth. And some comic characters don't ever change much. This character has changed a lot, uh, and it's always uh, it's always interesting for me again in this space to look at the era and the values of that era and how he is portrayed up to and, and including the most recent series. Uh, I was a little nervous about this one with all the colonialism content. So I appreciate the sensitivity and as always the willingness to do homework and plan ahead uh, from my wonderful friends in this jury. Thank you all for being here. Uh, we're gonna put this episode out on Thursday, February 23rd. As we are wrapping up, let people know where they might find you online. Uh, and uh, what are your final thoughts or impressions uh, or energies as we wrap up our conversation on Kazar? Lastly, is there anything you'd like to plug based on what you are doing? Uh, let's start with Hussein here. All right. Thank you, as always, for a great conversation, everybody. Hussein Rashid. You can find me on my website, HusseinRashid.com. And uh, I am still on Twitter, but I've slowly moved over to Mastodon with the same handle. Islamo Yankee, I S L A M O Y A N K E E. And my uh, Mastodon instance is mastodon.social. Uh, in terms of uh, being on the show, I'm going to continue plugging my book, co edited book on Miss Marvel. Uh, please feel free to pick it up. You are definitely helping my retirement fund. And if you're interested in teaching about religion, I have a new co edited volume on teaching religion as well, all linked from my website, which you're all going to go run into right now. Thank you very much. Uh, next, Alicia. Hey, okay. I love doing these trials so much. I really appreciate everyone's perspectives and thoughts and the conversation that comes out of them. Um, you can find me and Justin all over the internet at the ex-wife podcast or the ex-wifepodcast.com. Um, that's T-H-E-X-W-I-F-E as in X-Men, not former wife. And I think that one thing that I really take away from this episode in particular or this trial in particular is that 
it's it's what you were saying and other people have said throughout um the conversation is just really the lens of the the time period and how interesting it is to to take one character and see how much that character changes because of the lens like the times that i read like the 60s the the issues that i read were very surface level and not a there's not a lot of depth to the character at all and then to go all the way to the 2000s to really be able to look at the arc of this character and for the writers to reflect on what that has done over time and how we can address it and not just make changes and ignore it i think is really interesting and i'd love to see that happening with more characters in comics just sort of like acknowledge that the way that they were written or the choices that were made for that character were made in the times because those were those were not necessarily ideas or concerns that were at the front of the mind of writers and that people didn't really dig deeper into that. And now we're saying instead of just, oh, well, that happened then because it happened then saying, OK, well, how can we how can we address that in newer comics? And I think that's it's just really interesting because I haven't felt that in any of the really any of the trials that we've done thus far. So, you know, I think it's really a great message to the readers and also just like um I applaud you Chad for taking the time to like really pull this character out and like make us have this conversation because these kinds of conversations are so important. So, thank you. Thanks for having us and thanks for making us use our brains. <laughs> uh over to Noel Reed next. Yeah, um I'm at L Reed or at X-Men Unraveled. Um, my podcast will be having new episodes out soon. Um, and I feel like Kazar was just, I just kind of thought of him as like Marvel Tarzan. Didn't find him super interesting. Um, but similar to Alicia, seeing those changes over the decades and how it reflects what's going on. And um, I, I, I enjoyed it. And I kind of, now more look forward to seeing where this character goes um, down the road with showing some growth. I think a lot of characters we've covered in Trials, they just keep spinning, doing the same things. And he does show growth at the end, uh, which is which is nice to see. Fantastic. Uh, Justin Wilder. Um, I think, you know, I, well, everything that Alicia said about the X-Wife podcast, I'm just Add that in again, say that again. <laughs> uh, February will be years flung into the future because of that bastard, Nathaniel Essex. <laughs> uh, but about this bastard, Kevin Plunder, and just how uh, I feel like I've gotten to know so much more about him and about the struggle that he started with, just kind of being this uh, no-definition brute that only knew what he was raised around, but then having him gradually question, maybe not answer, but at least start to question his place in this world and, you know, what is his responsibility? Who is he? What still holding on to his morals, you know, kill or be killed. Am I right? Hey, everybody. No. Uh, but I, I feel like we got to watch him grow across these 50 or so years in these points that we pulled out. And, it's it's reassuring to just know that there's more to him to be explored and to understand and to almost atone for the 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 quick strokes in the early appearances that had more 
beneath the surface. Fantastic. And then uh, finally, Steve. Yep. Uh, my name is Steve. My pronouns are they and them. You can find me at Howdy Duda on Twitter. You can find me on Mastodon and Instagram. Well, not Instagram. Mastodon, Tumblr, Hive probably if it's still around. There's a few different places I got that handle, and I'll try to use them all more, but mostly I'm using Twitter right now. And you can... During the month of February, listen to me right here on Gray Malkin Lane. You can go back and listen to some of the old trials. You can listen to our current coverage with X's for Podcast slash X's for Show. We're doing a kind of a rebrand. Um, you can check me out on a bunch of different little podcasts uh, throughout the month of February. Um, you can come to my Twitter and see whatever it is I'm currently ranting about by the end of the month. <laughs> Yep. Wonderful. Uh, let me just express my gratitude to each of you. I am so thankful to be surrounded by people that I respect and admire and just enjoy spending time with. This was a delight. We are recording this on Super Bowl Sunday early in the afternoon uh, with everybody having plans afterward. I just feel super peaceful and happy and inspired. And, and uh, this was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, my name is Chad Anderson. You can find me on, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but you can find the podcast, Green Welcome PP, like podcast on Twitter, Green Welcome underscore lane on Instagram. This trial was fascinating for me to put together in the similar way as like Namor was. I hope that I'm surprising some of our listeners with some of the choices. It would be, uh, it would be easy to just do the X-Men characters, but the ancillary 60s stuff has been fascinating for me to learn about as well. This might be the most interesting research I've done out of all of them and in, in, in putting it all together. Assembling the research on Blob or Toad, for example, were fascinating, but Kesar, Kesar was really, really interesting to me on an intellectual level. Uh, we're going to be continuing the theme of the Savage Land in the next couple of trials. So this one's being released in February. The March trial is my favorite villain, uh, Dr. Carl Lycos, the evil Sauron. And the April trial, I will preemptively announce, because we already discussed it slightly, is the trial of Sergei Kravenov or uh, Craven the Hunter. And both of them were wild to research. <laughs> These guys are nuts, man. We're going to have a good time. Uh, thank you to each of my jury members. My single favorite moment in today's trial is when I said, what do you love about the Savage Land? And you all went, dinosaurs, dinosaurs, dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Uh, oh, by the way, our next episode after this is going to be X-Men number 65, featuring professionals Alex Segura and Keith DiCandido. We are wrapping up with volume uh, one with number 66 shortly after that. And there's some crazy cool plans in place for that episode. Uh, my next Patreon after this is going to be with Demanda Martini on the time-traveling daughter of Bolivar Trask, Madame Sanctity, uh, who we referenced on the show back in Uncanny X-Men minus one. We're gonna have a great time delving in. Okay, thank you, everybody. We will see you back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.